Welcome to Season 3 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Daniel Reynolds talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 64, Stonewall Uprising. Today, we are joined by Taylor Struss, the designer of this historical LGBTQ plus game published by Catastrophe Games, which honestly is perfect to start out uh, as we enter Pride Month. But uh, Taylor, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, no problem. How you doing, Danielle? <laughs> I'm doing great. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know you, mind just kind of telling them how you got into the game design community? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, the the broad strokes are that I played Risk Legacy one day and thought, hey, you know, maybe like this might be a thing I could try out. This is kind of cool. And uh, then I started working on my own games, which were very bad at first. I mean, really, really bad. Um, That's so interesting that that was the game that got you in. <laughs> or like got uh, yeah, you inspired I, to design i played some other games that i really liked like i played settlers for a while like a lot of people and then i got dominion and i'm like whoa this is really different um and then i got into like magic and i've been playing D for years and years at that point um and i started making a couple games uh by my own and, and with friends and uh, again most of them were just trash just god awful but i was so interested in making them better i was so driven to like <laughs> Because the one thing that I like to tell new designers is that you probably have good taste in your games, but you don't have the skills to execute on that. So you know your games are bad, but you can't describe or articulate why or how to fix it. But you know they're bad deep down. Um, and so trying to trying to get your skill as a designer up to your taste is very difficult and time consuming. <laughs> I've um, never thought of it like that. I like that. Yeah, I don't remember why I read it phrased that way. I feel like it was somewhere on Twitter or something, probably. Um, which so is not why original. It's so funny. But yeah, it's not my own thought. I, I will, I will totally concede that. Um, but I think it's a really, it, it really cleared why, um, why I could tell a game was bad, but not make a game that was as good, right? Which is a weird dissonance mentally. Um, so it was, it was a good learning point for me. I think that really helped me understand. Oh. I've just played enough games that I have reasonable taste for what is a good game, but I don't have the skills to make that come true yet. Sure. So then for our spotlight, what ended up inspiring you to design Stonewall Uprising? Um, story's kind of funny. Uh, and, you know, I mean, in, in some ways. So what, what happened was in 2018, I was working on a prototype. Um, and, and broadly, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty, but the cool, like, premise was that it's a worker placement game but it's a do-it-yourself worker placement game where you place the worker placement spots with tetrominoes that are that are um see-through and so you'd have a blue tetromino you'd place and that would be your worker spot other people could use it but like you know you're the one who made it right um mm -hmm. and over the course of the game the board shifted so they fell off and new ones were were found and um, my original theme for the game was terraforming because you're terraforming like the land to find out all the minerals or whatever. And then after a while, I wasn't really happy with the theme and I changed it to like a, like a old school, like Neanderthal tribes vying for resources and survival mm -hmm. and like the ice age or something. Um, and I, while I was trying to go from the retheme, I was at a local con, a, a small con that, that they have in LA. Um, and I was discussing with some of the other local designers what possible rethemes I could choose, what I could do. 
Um, because the core premise was that it's it's still a worker placement game, but the map is shifting as you play. And so there were some really wild, fun ideas that were thrown out, like aging. That was a really interesting one, right? Um, and or, or maybe the invasion of the Mongols. That was kind of a cool one, right, over Europe. That's, that's different. Yeah. Um, but one of the more interesting pitches that was thrown my way, which I, I, I immediately could tell I'm not going to use, was Moses leading the Jews out of Egypt. Um, because talk about a great massive migration of people that's famous that's you know people know about you know but when i heard that um i immediately thought that's not really my story to tell right i know i'm i'm not i'm not a very religious person <laughs> at sure. all and i don't know enough about the jewish or christian faith that to really do that justice and i actually think a, a game about that would be really cool broadly um but uh, that got me thinking, what would be like a game that I could tell that maybe some someone else couldn't, right? Um, and I remember thinking about it on the way home being like, oh, well, I guess I could make a game about like, you know, about like Stonewall or something. That would be maybe a topic that I would have um, a unique thing to say about and a unique voice to say about it. And I still think it'd be cool if other people worked on other games about this, which I'm sure I'll repeat later because I still think it'd be rad. Um, but yeah, so I thought about that and then I put it in my pocket and then I went along and did other stuff. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I had that in the back of my head, just kind of percolating for a couple years. And then in the middle of 2020, um, I, like a lot of people was feeling a little, a little lost and unsure how to proceed. Let's say this was in June too, which is only better for the story, but true. Um, and uh, I, I was, you know, I was thinking about game ideas and, and how to proceed and what I want to do. And I came across, I, I, I thought about why I, um, why I find uh, like the game Artifact and MOBAs appealing conceptually, but I don't play any of them. I, I, I find them really slow and boring and tedious. <laughs> um. And for those who don't know, MOBAs are like multi or, or what multi lane battle arenas, mm -hmm. um, something like that. I'm probably messing up the acronym. That's not. <laughs> don't look at me. I'm not great at that. No, you're fine. I'm just trying to remember myself. Um, anyway, and so and the reason I like them is because there's three lanes, so you're kind of playing the game on three angles, right? You're trying to push and pull in like the middle or or the upper, lower, mid, or I don't know what they're called. But the idea is like, you know, we're fighting at three fronts, so it's hard to always be winning on all three fronts, right? And I was like, man, I, I bet that would be a really good premise as a really core mechanism for a game where like in a two-player game, you're fighting over three fronts and like playing three games of tug-of-war at once. Like you're never going to win them all. That's cool. I like that. And I immediately realized that maybe with some details filled out, of course, um, maybe that that's how you'd uh, like abstract down a game about like Stonewall broadly. Because it would have to be pretty abstracted uh, unless you're going to get really nitty-gritty detailed, which I did not want to do. And so that was kind of the start. Like I went home and started working on it in really rough strokes. And that's kind of what became Stonewall. I mean, really. Very cool. And then for anyone who hasn't played the game, would you mind explaining how to play? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Stonewall Uprising is a is a two-player, uh, somewhat asymmetric deck-building game for one to two players. Uh, there's a solo mode. Um, and in the game, 
you either play as Pride, fighting for your civil rights in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, or the man fighting against them. And so over the over the decades, um, you're going to be deck building and then playing throughout the decades, fighting on three tracks, um, systemic support, public support, and individual support. And uh, unlike most deck builders, you don't have turns where you play all your cards. It's not really, not really how the game works. Um, instead, you play one card at a time. And you play a card, there's a... Uh, it tells you what track it moves and how many spaces it pulls it toward you, just like a game of tug of war. And you do that, and maybe there's text, and you do the text. It depends. A lot of the cards start off blank because I like making games parsable for players who are new. Not everyone's played a million deck builders. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and uh, once you get to the ends of these tracks, there are colored zones that you land on that give you cool abilities to help you win, and they reset back to the middle afterwards. So it's awkward because you want to wait as long as possible to trigger those, but you also know that your opponent might pull them away, meaning that you can't reach them anymore. Um, and then finally, uh, the last big um, twist is that to buy cards, you have to fold. Um, instead of playing a card in your turn, you can fold by putting your hand face down. Um, and the, the gist of it is that those cards are your currency to buy cards from your market. They aren't shared markets. It's just your market. Because why would Pride use the man's tools and vice versa? But as long as you're folded, your opponent's cards are doubled uh, for the rest of the round. So it's very scary to fold. I will note, though, that you do get some some balance in that in the following round for every card they play while you're folded, you draw that many extra cards. So it's kind of like the pendulum of, of how things work and how political factions lose and gain power uh, broadly, again, abstractly. Um, is is what I'm attempting to simulate with that, right? Like, it's not just, you know, but when you step away from the fight, the, your opponent's power is so much larger and so much spookier. You don't know what's going to happen, but you do need to focus inward to build out your coalition. Okay, so then walk us through the three different tracks. You have your systematic support, the public opinion, and then the individual support. Yeah. Um, you know, I will note as a funny aside uh, the middle track was originally called public opinion and it got changed to public support. So they all had support at the end, but it's funny that you said that naturally. Cause that is what it had been almost throughout all play testing. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Um, so, so, uh, the way that the man wins is by detaining and then demoralizing 10 people from pride's deck and note that any card is a person. Uh, the goal there is to show people, show players rather that these cards were real people in the movement. They had lives and loved ones and family members who cared about them. And so they aren't just cards with like a little bit of flavor text. You know, the idea is these were real people. And so um, that's how the man wins. And on systemic support, um, the man detains cards from pride's deck, uh, either their discard if they have one or the top of their deck, if they don't, which is pretty savage. Um, based on the number. The numbers get higher the further you get. There's like four uh, possible numbers you can do. And then Pride's end of that is to undetain that many people, which means take them from the detained area and then put them in their discard. Um, for public support, um, the man increases the Overton window, which is half of Pride's win condition. Pride, they have kind of two goals that they just need to meet in the middle. Um, one On one half, they need to knock the Overton window down. It starts at 30 uh, as low as they can. They just want to get the Overton window, which is a broad political concept about what the public is willing to accept, what what they can understand and, and empathize with. And so your goal is to knock uh, the Overton window, specifically about queer civil rights, 
um, and about, you know, your right to be with your loved ones and love each other that broadly, the over to window is used in a lot of contexts, but in this specific one, we're just talking about one issue. And so with public support, the man knocks that up by a value. Um, and then on pride's end, they gain uh, dice and the dice of the other half of their equation. Think of them as like protests, demonstrations, mm-hmm. riots, uh, anything like that, anything public. And every time Pride gains a die from this, or for any reason, they take all the all the dice in their pool, they add that, and then roll them all over again. Um, and this is to show how when you're in the middle of a riot or a protest or a demonstration or a town hall, you never know exactly how it's going to play out. Yeah, the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. But, you know, even, even with so many bites of the apple, luck can still uh, be nice to you or not be nice to you. And so uh, when Pride rolls their dice and they get better dice the further along the track, just like normal, um, if they roll equal to or over to or over equal to or over than the Overton window, they win the game instantly. And so they need to kind of get their coalition actioned, um, activated to to win the game because they can't just change hearts and minds. They have to take action and and change hearts and minds, but they can do their win condition in order. Um, Okay. And then uh, the last track is individual support, which is support on a much more one-to-one basis. Uh, on the man side of that track, they can demoralize detained people. And so these are random cards taken from the detained pile, um, shuffled up. The man does not care who it takes. It really just, it just, you know, it's just trying to slow down the winds of change. It doesn't have a goal of its own. It's just trying to be the biggest asshole in the room. And, um, and so then they demoralize that many people at random. Once they get to 10, they win. And then on Pride's end, they can move the Overton window down by a value. And these values are just better than the man's values when they move it up. Because they're talking one-to-one. They're talking to real people. They're showing they have empathy and they're real, they're real human beings who have real lives. And it's not just, oh, look at this giant machine trying to trying to stop all the the, the you know, the way things are going. Um and at first, it feels impossible as Pride. You know, you have no dice. The Overton window's at 30, and all the man has to do is to get 10 cards in this one pile. But as they play the game, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, things get better and better in their favor. I love the different balance of, like, all these things. And just, like, I'm trying to think of me as a designer, like, how I would even begin the process of deciding on these decisions for the mechanics. Could you walk me through just some of the thoughts there? Sure. Um, so to, to, to walk you through the design a little bit, the history rather, um, what I did first, so the game takes place through three decades now, but when I first started the game, it was only the 60s, because for those unaware, Stonewall happened in June um, 28th, 29th, 30th, I believe, um, of 1969, and so originally the game took place over a decade, and the idea was you'd play from the early moments of the gay civil rights movement to like the inciting incident. Right. And for reasons I'll get into later, it did not stay that way. But initially it was one decade. You had one set of cards in your market. It was much, it was a little simpler, but, um, but the original thing I really tested after doing my research and I rapidly went through research because I was, I really knew that I could tell if this did not nail the theme early, my play testers would not be convinced about the theme because I knew if it felt too abstract, it wouldn't, it wouldn't click. And so what I did was I went onto my um, my uh, image 
making web uh, uh, program of choice, which is MS Paint. I know, very fancy. <laughs> yeah. And um, and I and I, I I made three tracks, right? I made three tracks with with spaces for cubes because I knew that would just be easy and simple. Whatever it ended up being, it could change. It did end up being just tracks and cubes, but um, but I made three tracks thematically, and then I thought, what would they do mechanically and thematically, right? So, like, you know, systemic support, it makes sense that the man detains people from Pride's deck because that's using their systemic support. Likewise, it tracked for Pride to do the opposite with systemic support. They use people like Harvey Milk and people in positions of power slowly. They're naturally not great at it initially, but you can get better um, to undertain those people. Great. And then for uh, public support, you know, for the man, they're using – Things like television and radio and institutions that have been there forever to change the Overton window against uh, uh, what the what the Pride movement wants, and then likewise for public support for public yeah um, Pride is doing protests and riots and demonstrations and educating people and Pride parades you know they're doing all these things, um, and so that's them working with the public at mass right they're interacting with public people. Uh, and you know, again, you can imagine it being on the news or on radio or just, or just there being a group of, of, you know, people not part of the pride movement there. Um, and then finally for individual support, um, the idea was individuals are, are the, um, are demoralizing prides people, um, you know, on a one-to-one basis because, um, you know, it's, it's it's just tough. You need to have it balanced and make sense thematically. And so the idea is like um, people, you know, pe- people are just going to be huge assholes. And it's really those outliers and those specific people. Um, I mean, back in the day, politicians could say really bad things and not get any flack. And they, I guess they can yeah. still somewhat today. But um, especially with, with pride picking up as a power, it was harder and harder for people – to say that out loud um, as the decades went on and, and, you know, it's hard to, to punish people, especially without like the internet or whatever, to record this stuff um, and show them, Hey, it's not cool to be a bigot, but, but, you know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, what were they going to do? Like, like get a cassette and record you or something like that's not reasonable. Um, and occasionally <laughs> yeah. there were hot mic moments, of course, just like with anything, but the idea is, yeah. So those are, those are how people get demoralized. they get taken out of the movement through, you know, uh, actions of individuals. And, and, you know, thematically, this this possibly could have been done better with, with like, public support or what have you or systemic support. But in order to make it a game with balance and stuff, you know, there is some sacrifice there. Oh, um, for sure. And then uh, for Pride side of, of individual support, I really like the idea of them going to individual people, talking with them, especially family members, and look and saying, look – you know, I'm not some horrible demon. You know, I am just another person like you who deserves respect and kindness. Just because I like women shouldn't change the past we've had. Or just because I am a woman or something like that. None of that should change any of that. And that that's why they're so much more effective at it than the man. Because people, you know, people eventually see through the veneer of, of propaganda, typically. Um, but when it's a real person talking about something they're actually advocating for and it impacts their real life. It means that they can't just step away from the fight and, and just, 
be okay with that. No, this is their livelihood. This is this is their life they're fighting for. Whereas for many people on the man's side, it's just like another culture war issue nonsense, which feels kind of obvious today. But back then, it was not so much the case. Yeah, honestly, I really feel that like the individual support just like me, when I talk to people, I've had a ridiculous amount of people come out to me personally, but not where they felt that they could come out to the world and were, you know, <laughs> very much not back in the like 60s, 70s, 80s, like we're, yeah. we're in the 2000s. And it's just such a bummer to me that like we still are at a spot where not everyone feels comfortable coming out because it will affect their families or like their dynamics with people. It's just like, it's such a bummer, but it is yeah, very I mean, cool I, that you found all these ways to represent it. Yeah. And so, um, so taking that thematically, and it didn't all start exactly that way, but of course got there pretty quick. Um, was I focused on the card play and how the tracks worked and how the cards worked and kind of like, I figured out the core system that I described earlier where like I play one card, then it's your turn and we pass and pass and go forth and fold and stuff. And once that felt really good, um, I, I wasn't, I honestly wasn't sure where to go next. If I'm being honest, I, you know, the, the, the game played pretty good. The cards needed tuning. Um, but the core system felt really different. You know, I'd never played a deck builder with individual turns. I'd never played a two-player only deck builder. Um, and of course it was a historical game too. So there's all this extra nuance and and text that's important to the game, but probably not as important to the actual gameplay. Right. Yeah, no, I'm I'm sure like the flavor text of it was important because you wanted to keep it to the theme, but also technically could be ignored to enjoy the game itself. Yeah, and I've had players tell me they have to ignore a lot of the text on the man stuff to enjoy the game. Um, but that was going to be one of my questions because with this asymmetric two-player game, no offense, I would feel zero want or need to play as the man. I would only ever want to play as Pride. Did you find that as a problem when you were playtesting? So it's interesting. Um, I, I get I get a lot of responses to it, um, and. Broadly, I mean, I, I knew that it was going to be a challenge, but the more I worked on the game, the more passionate I was about the game broadly, if that makes sense. Where, you know, the more I learned, the more I really wanted to tell the story. And but part of the appeal of having the man as a player is that it's not just something you can condemn and move on. It's like a living, breathing person that you might have to argue with, just like in yeah. real life. And I, I think that part of it really struck a chord with me that I liked. Because, um, you know, players would tell me it made them feel nasty inside. They, they would feel uh -huh. bad about the actions they took. And they would they would think about, you know, what they've done in the past. And it would, it would make them be introspective, basically. And the more I worked on the game, the more it came to me that that was, you know, that was telling me it was a real work of art, literally. Not to be pretentious. But when people feel strongly about something you've made, that's art. And it was hard to ignore that. What is, like, you as a designer, someone playing this game for the first time, what would you want them to take away from the experience of it? I, I would want them to take away that it's always been an uphill struggle. It's always been an uphill battle. And no victory for Pride was ever easy or, or just handed to them or was just accepted. Because... You know, that, that I think is a lot of the thesis of the game is just how much of a pain in the ass it's been for decades um, and how much crap has been thrown at them. I mean, you know, I, most people can guess what's going to happen in the third act of the game in the 80s, 
But even knowing what's going to happen in the 80s, it's still a, such a gut punch. Yeah. So it's insane. Like I, I personally have been trying to like read up more and more on like LGBTQ plus history. And it it's honestly insane how much I didn't know because like we're not oh, yeah. taught it in school. Similar oh, to yeah. when I worked on my game, her story, like I was only taught history from like a straight male, mostly yeah, white bet. guy perspective. Cause that's who wrote the history books. Yeah. And it leaves a lot of gaps and hopefully they're changing that in the curriculums at schools. I mean, there was so much research I did, um, and it, it, like the more research I did, the more research I found, and I eventually just had to stop at a certain point just to like make my prototype. <laughs> yeah, because I couldn't just I couldn't research just forever. Um, and then once, so once I made the base game, and I had people telling me I want more, right? They're like, I want more content. I like the core a lot, but I feel like it could be expanded a bit which is why I had two more decades in the game. And mm-hmm. so then I took a month off because I want to note me making the core of this game took like just a straight month. Right. Yeah. Which is the fastest I've ever made, like a probably a decent game in my life. And then I took a month off to read about the seventies and eighties as much as I could just like do a lot of reading and watching. I, you know, I watched documentaries. I read, um, I read several books. I mean, just as much as I get my hands on to yeah. give me more and more context for what was happening. And it was interesting. I found the 80s really, really easy to find info about. And the 70s was just awkward. It was just like poorly documented, always like weird nooks and crannies. I did find some real gems, though. Uh, my, I think my favorite piece of reading I did, or uh, my favorite thing I found, which I actually got to put in the game as a card, is a documentary called um, Word is Out, Stories of Some of Our Lives. And it is a queer-made documentary made in the 70s by queer filmmakers about queer people talking about their struggles in society. Um, and it's it's really rough, but it's like trying to be optimistic because, you know, they have these people and they're like, you know, we're, we've, we've been together for this long. I divorced my husband in this year. Uh, of course, the judges wouldn't let us keep our kids because we're not straight. So why would they trust us or whatever? And but we're happy together now. And this is how we live our lives. And it was really wild because I'm watching this and I'm like, wait, I recognize half these names. And then I realized, Oh, these are all like, these are all activists from the movement, you know, and, and, and here they are putting on a documentary where they're just being honest and, and candid about what their lives are about. And they're like, they, they're just, they just want to be happy. Like it's so obvious what their goal is and it's, you just feel for them. And apparently you know, this aired at a couple film festivals or what have you in the 70s. But what really ended up happening was somehow it got a national syndication once or twice. I don't think much, but it did get on national TV. And at the very end, there's an address. And that address, the first time it was uh, shown on TV, got flooded with letters, just flooded with messages about how this was the first time they'd seen anything like this positively and they felt this way of their lives but never knew how to describe it. And it was it's really touching, the idea that there's this many people who can relate to this story but never could put words to it because back in the 60s, most people didn't even know what a homosexual was. Is it bad that I can totally relate to that? I grew up in Arizona. I didn't even know being a gay girl was an option. Like I knew two gay guys and then sure. – straight people and then i went to college i was like wait a second 
you can be a girl that likes girls because the closest <laughs> I came to it was like, you know, in Friends, Ross's wife like left, you know, to be oh a lesbian. Gosh. But like they yeah, never really yeah. showed what that meant. I just yeah, like they look like roommates. <laughs> and, and things like that are always my go to examples when people talk about um, when people discuss in, in media and, and content about showing queerness. And my, my response is always, you never know what someone's first, you like how someone will first see a queer character, right? How you like the first someone's first gay character, lesbian character, bi or pan or, or trans character, you never know what that's going to be. So in, in a weird way, you want them to be real people because, you know, queer people are real people. That's just true. But you also want them to know, you know, we're out there. And that's why I think hiding it um, is such a bad idea. And um, you know, there was a point where I, where I understood where they were coming from, but the older I get and the more I, I see the impact it has on people, the more I'm like, no, 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 do not hide this. You know, you should show it off. And that way people can know they exist and then figure out their own lives for themselves. It's not conditioning anyone. That's ridiculous. If it was conditioning. Then all these shows, shows of straight people would make us all straight. That obviously does not happen. <laughs> oh my God. No, I mean... Yeah, <laughs> I feel like yeah. we'd we'd have a lot less people out there that are cl- saying that they're gay if uh, just watching straight couples on television yeah, exactly. turns you straight. I mean, it's that's so why funny. when I hear this dumb argument, I go, look, if that was the case, I definitely grew up seeing way more straight couples than queer ones. And that didn't do jack shit for me. <laughs> I know. I think so. it's funny because, like, I mean, I have the, the nuclear family. Like, my parents are still together. They, like started dating in college, still together. And then me and my brother are gay and my sister is straight. And she actually gets teased more for being straight than us for being gay, which sure. I find very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, things change, you know, it's, it's, yep. I definitely poke fun at, at my straight friends for how, um, you know, I, I mean, how wrong they are really is what I tell them. I go, man, it, it, I just can't imagine being so wrong generally. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> um, um Okay. Well, hey, let's let's get back into talking about the game. So this is a historical game. Did you go to Catastrophe Games as the publisher knowing that because it was a historical game, they would take it? Like, how did you find a publisher for it? So, yeah. So, I mean, I've pitched around uh, more than once. Um, and I, I, I contacted basically any publisher I thought would be interested in a historical game. Um, broadly, I, I, I didn't. I didn't exclude really any options that I thought might work. Um, and catastrophe responded very favorably to it, which was, which was a pleasant surprise. Um, not that I got any terribly negative responses. It was just either like a no or a no response at all. Right. Uh, which isn't, if you've, if you've pitched, games I was gonna say, it's pretty common in general, it's pretty common. It's, I, you know, I, it, it would be, I, I could, if I wanted to, say, oh, well, you know, these publishers said no, and gee, I wonder why. But at the end of the day, um, that's not reasonable. I know they get a million and a half submissions. I've helped sort submissions for companies. It is not easy. You get a lot of them. And But Catastrophe responded very quickly and was immediately interested. I actually recall Tim's email. Tim's the owner of the company. And mm-hmm. he said, oh, a, a war game that's not about war? What a novel concept. And from that response, um, I think two days later, we had a play of the game. I mean, it was wild. Wow. We played the game online, like, again, just a couple days later. And the reason they ended up signing it is because they played the game. Um, and the person who played the man, uh, he 
felt nauseous by the end of the game from what he was doing. He just he had such a visceral response to his in-game actions being just evil that he told Tim, he's like, we need to sign this, you need to sign this game. And to me, that was really rewarding in a strange way because like my my goal of having a player feel bad for what they're doing um, as a player had worked brilliantly there right my yeah. my goal of, of getting players to feel an emotional response by playing as a role in a game you know that is asymmetric but not wildly so your turns are mostly similar um it's just your goals and how you achieve them that are different um but through just Little bits here and there, I'd been able to sneak in a lot of emotional um, kind of design in a way that was able to guide my players from one end of the spectrum to the other. Where Pride is supposed to feel on the back foot for a lot of the game, you know, they really aren't that on the back foot. They can win. And likewise, the man is supposed to feel domineering and oppressive, and they do, but they, they can't just destroy Pride's game plan because if they could, then it wouldn't be much of a game. And at the end of the day, I wanted a game that is also historically informed and and gets players to, you know, understand why these roles existed and what what happened historically. That is so amazing. And it sounds like you did a great job achieving it. I, how long did it take you, though, from like that initial thought of, hey, this is a subject I'd like to make a game about, but then adding in the research, the mechanics, and then getting it signed and having it published and out to people how long so, do you think it went from inspiration publication? From so I, I I came up with the game probably in broad strokes in early 2018, probably early 2018, and because they all that con a couple times a year, and that was blurred in my head. Yeah. Um, and then the game came out uh, last year. Yeah, last year, uh, probably around October September. So. Um, What's that? Four-ish years, a little over four and a half years, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny because the actual game came together in basically two two full months of working on it, and then and then I started pitching it. <laughs> yeah, that um, there was a lot of research, like a whirlwind of research at that time. I was ordering all these books and watching all these documentaries, and you know, just trying to absorb as much content. And of course, as I'm working on it, I'm learning more and more, and I can't put it all into the game. There's just no way to put it all into the game. Um, and my, my dream is that one day I'll have like an expansion or something to put even more stuff in there. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that'll ever happen. Uh, but Pride Month's coming up, so I guess I guess Catastrophe will see how interested people are. But um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. So it was about four and a half years from me coming up with it to it actually releasing. And there's a lot of art in the game. I mean, a lot of art. Uh, we, we were able to do some really cool stuff by having two different artists, one for the man who's gritty and dark and kind yeah. of um, t- toned down a lot of grays and blacks and, and, and whatnot. And then for pride, there's a lot more vibrant colors um, and things generally look happier. They're still trying to fight for their rights. They're not just happy and smiling, but they're a lot more lively, so to speak. And on top of that, uh, one big decision that that I made was that Pride gets named people. Pride gets people like Harvey Milk or Marsha P. Johnson, big people in the movement who did big things. And then the man gets no name people. The man gets no idols who you can look up uh, online or even just look up to. And 
that was mm-hmm. something that was great for the art because I was able to showcase these important people in the movement and then you know kind of design wise in a way a weird graphic design kind of way show like the man is so awful these you know they're important to learn about in some ways but they're not people i want people to look up to i don't want to portray them as heroes of their movement they had no heroes of the movement because they were not heroes gotcha no that makes sense that they're more like silhouettes or archetypes of yeah and so like i have cards like conservative radio or religious groups or something but i don't the the closest i get to naming anyone like that is i have a card called the reagan administration and i'm sorry reagan is important enough and you probably know who reagan is to know how poorly he did during the aids epidemic i mean it's it's almost inarguable if not entirely inarguable um and uh and so yeah i mean that's that was one really nice thing is that we had the art and a lot of the time after signing, it was spent on figuring art, figuring icons, making sure they were as historically accurate as possible so that we were not, um, you know, having pride flags in the 60s when they when Gilbert Baker made it in the 70s. And, uh, you know, lots of little details like that that most people probably aren't aware of, but maybe maybe they'll play my game and, and learn some stuff. I love that. That's amazing. So then as far as the whole design journey, did you have a favorite moment and a least favorite moment or thing? That's interesting. That's a good one. I think, I mean, I think my favorite moment was, was probably during the pitch was probably when I pitched the game of catastrophe. And the reason they wanted to sign it was because of exactly what I was angling for emotionally, um, where it was about how the game made you feel and, and, that ultimately was a big goal of mine. So to see it pay off that hugely was really rewarding and really gratifying. As for a least favorite moment, you know, it's it's kind of hard to to, to pick one, um, because the the game the the development of the game was such a whirlwind. Um, but if I had to pick anything, I would probably say it was kind of the slog of like, you know, oh, it's such a shame that we have enough of an art budget that we have to wait so long for our game to come out because we're, we're making these awesome pieces of art for the game. <laughs> you That's know, so funny. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't anything like terrible. It just, you know, it would have been nice if we could just like snap and then make it all come together, but that's not how games work. Yeah. take a lot of time and people working together as you all know. And that is uh, its own, you know, its own thing, but it was, it was great working with catastrophe. They were um, for, for a company, that was founded by an ex-Marine. I was pleasantly surprised by how receptive uh, Tim was and the larger company was to my game, I gotta say. That is amazing. It definitely not what I would have immediately expected, but I don't mind being proven wrong. I mean, hey, no one's ever right all the time. True. So then I guess like for designers that are trying to like make a game, honestly, from a historical angle or just from something you're passionate about, do you have a piece of advice you would share? I I would say that if there's a piece of history you're passionate about, good odds there's a company that will make a game about it if they haven't already. And I would say the more niche and focused your your passion um, you know, honestly, there, there's decent odds that it will translate into it, it possibly getting made because these historical companies, they they see a lot of World War II games and a lot of Civil War games and yada yada, but they don't see a lot of games about wider topics. 
And so really branching off can do you wonders. And it's funny because I'm not really a war gamer or historical like gamer generally. A lot of my games prior to this were just like push your luck stuff or weird kid stuff, you know, just playing around with ideas. And some of them got close to getting signed and didn't quite get there. And some of them are in limbo. But, you know, I was surprised by how much traction and interest this this got, especially because most war games are about shooting each other and about murder and war. And my game technically has that, if you know your history, but broadly, not really. It's not a war. It's a, it's a cultural conflict. And taking a different angle on that, I think, can pay dividends, um, not only from... Uh, pitching your game to publishers, but also just differentiating your game from the crowd. I mean, I know my game has like a rainbow on it with almost any cover, and that's awesome because I love rainbows because they're great. And it it really makes your game stand out. And I, I really like that visually. I like that conceptually. And, you know, it doesn't need to be rainbows, of course. But, you know, historical game companies generally are big history nerds first. And if you have a cool take on something historical... I say go for it. I mean, you know, the best thing is you'll be passionate about it. Make it feel like it's that moment in time, of course. And that's some of the hardest part is to make sure it doesn't feel like it could be any setting. That is difficult and takes some time and testing and iteration. But, you know, with some with some work, you'd be surprised at how a little can go a long way. Even just phrasing the wind conditions in this way or that way or phrasing the actions in this way or that way. Like the power of game verbiage is really huge. And, and Stonewall really cemented that for me because if you describe the game in generic terms, people would just be like, oh, I don't really care. But then when you describe the game in its own terms with its own language, it really comes alive. And I think it's easy to forget that when you make prototype after prototype of like Cube Game 1 or Push Your Luck Game 2. And, and then you make a game that's really themed from the get-go and it really stands out. I think that's great. Yeah, I I love passively learning through board games and learning about like historical times or movements or like even just architecture types, just like random information. Yeah, yeah, big fan. Things you'll pick up. Yeah, I know it's it's great though. Like, and I'm glad that people are continuing to expand on it, and we are getting more than just World War Two, World War One games. Because I'm also (laughs) not a war gamer typically. Um, Yeah, but if they have more stuff like this, I could be swayed into it for sure. I mean, I really think that there's a bit of a wave coming, uh, like with the World League announcement where they announced a bunch of games at the beginning of the year that they're looking into, like Molly House. I really think that we are beginning to see historical games that are not war games. And I'm very excited for that because that is much more where my interest lies. I'm not really interested in games about war, but games about history, I do generally find interesting. And that's why... Generally, you know, I'll say I, I I like historical games because about a moment in history that tends to be pretty cool and interesting. But you know, generally, yeah, I've seen a lot of ways that people can resolve conflict in games with dice or cards or what have you. Uh, but give me like a reason to care, you know? Oh, for sure. And so then, do you have any projects that your fans should be looking out for? I so uh, for anyone who follows anything I'm doing, uh, you might have heard that uh, World of Gig may or may not be signing the sacred band that Joe Schmidt and I uh, are working on. It's a, it's a, it's a game about 300 warriors who are also 150 pairs of male lovers in ancient Greece who fought against the Spartans and Macedonians. Uh, We're still working on that. And a whirly gig is interested in, in potentially signing in the future. And what's funny is 
the story where I talked about the, the playtester who felt nauseous playing my game. That yeah. playtester was my co-designer, Joe. <laughs> oh, funny. <laughs> yeah, that's how we met. And that's why he was so convinced he wanted to make a game with me. So that's pretty humorous. And uh, past that, um, I have a bunch of other uh, projects I'm, I'm working out. I would say the one that's really on my mind right now, uh, this will be years from being made officially, but it's, I'm really excited about it. Mm-hmm. It's a game about um, generating networks of public transit. It's a fully cooperative game. And you are doing this to reduce car dependency in your city. And so you need to get commuters where they need to go. And if you're not good at it, they will just rely on cars and, and let your infrastructure rot. But if you do a good job and build a proper network, it can thrive and people won't have to rely on driving everywhere. Very nice. I like that we're trying to inform people and change the future with your games. <laughs> it's uh, very yeah, cool. It's, it, it's funny. I never, I, I never really did a lot of that. And then like I worked on Stonewall and then I was all I can think about because when you work on a game that you are passionate about, and I'm sure you know this, you are that much more excited about it. And so yep. it's not that I don't mind more generically themed games, but I find that I get so much more riled up about them. And that, that helps your game. It helps your momentum. It helps your pitch. It helps everything. And it's not that every game I ever want to work on is going to be like politically minded or something, but I definitely find that when they are, there is a different kind of light in my head that goes off compared to like, oh, I figured out a way to do a push your luck game that's a little bit different than someone else. Whereas here, I'm trying to solve backwards. Like, how do I show these problems in a game? How do I abstract this to a, to a digestible format? Um, and that is a different challenge. Oh, for sure. All right. Well, so for my last question of the show, if you could have sure. been the designer of any game, but it's not one that you designed, which game would you choose? That's tough. I mean, there are a lot of games that I really like. And I I think the answer is probably not what people might expect. Um, and it has to do with my love of deck building games. Um, I, I love deck building games. I just... I mean, there's a reason Stonewall is a deck builder. It's because that way I can mm-hmm. have my randomness just innate. I don't have to worry about other mechanisms getting in the way. I'm just like, boom, it's right there. And I, I think I think if I had to pick a game, it'd probably be Quacks because Quacks of Quellenberg is such such a solid push your luck game. And I know there's nothing political about it, and there's nothing like there's not a big message. But man, that game is just so good. And I've played it so many, so many times. And I just don't get tired of it ever, 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 no matter how bad I do. No, honestly, I agree. It's a great game, like a great bag builder. Sadly, my cat stole the little flame. That's the round marker. No. I know. I know. Right. God damn. <laughs> they suck. But also That's even the kids rough. version of it, the like Quacks and Co. is one of the only like kids versions that are actually like really good. And I would play as an adult. That's funny because um, my nephew, we played that. It must have been like. 10 9 i don't know we'd play quacks like actual quacks and you know he loves that game like that's like the one game we would play all the time and he started like making up house rules and like doing wacky stuff is awesome um and uh and yeah it was it's just it's just so approachable it's a little intimidating when everything's on the table but once you get in the game you're in the game and there's not even time to like pick up your phone or like no you're just so into it i love it it's so so good it's so engrossing and i love games that are hyper engrossing they really take you in like the ludic circle and take you out of the, the the real world. And so you're not checking your phone. You're not watching another screen. You're not, you know, 
you're not even like, oh, I need to get up for a moment. No, you're so engrossed that you're just glued to the table. I love that stuff. It's just it's yes. so impressive when you see it. That in the simultaneous play is just really good because it's like you always yeah. have something to do. And I know I personally will just like keep my hand inside the bag playing with the little chips. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> like it's yeah, just right. like, te- yeah, textually just really fun and good for me. It's almost a fidget toy if we're being honest. Like I probably yeah, would yeah. be playing with it right now if I had the box open while we're talking. <laughs> yeah, I, I super agree. And that's actually why um, I play Dominion simultaneous because I just um, I don't I, there's no reason not to. I mean, really. Well, awesome. And so for the audience, thanks for joining us for this game uh, or this episode of Game Design <laughs> Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 64, Stonewall Uprising. And thanks again, Taylor, for being on the show. For anyone trying to find you online, where th- uh, where can they follow you? Uh, the main place that I am online, although I've been a little quiet lately, but I'm, I'm still around, is I have a uh, I have a Twitter uh, with my name or, or for Taylor Shuss or my, my tag is at Drawn Onward, all one word. Um, and I post there and that's where I'm most active by a decent margin. So that's where I'd recommend people finding me if they really, um, want to get in contact. My DMs are open. I'd love to hear about weird new game ideas or weird queer games people are working on. So feel free to reach out if you want to talk about stuff like that. I am super game. Amazing. And then for me, I'm your host, Danielle Reynolds. If you're trying to find me, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter under the username Token Gamer, and that's G-A-Y-M-E-R. And to the audience, I want to say like happy Pride Month. We're about to enter into it. And this was a great episode to have uh to just kind of open up our June. Hell yeah. Thank you for joining Danielle for another episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out no Join us next time.